following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Father, again, thank you for today. Thank you for your son. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to to look to your word. And, Lord, again, uh, let us not take for granted what you have given. You have spoken to us and given us your truth, uh, not because of anything in us, but because of your kindness and your grace and your desire to have a relationship with us. We thank you for your son who makes that relationship possible. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I know um, times I've shared part of my testimony with you of how the Lord um, opened my eyes. Um, there's some details people often ask me, what happened? You usually don't say the things that you did before you got saved. There's a reason for that. But I will share a couple things this morning. And the reason I will is because my son and I, we've been reading this book uh, together this summer called Don't Waste Your Life. It's by John Piper. It's a book that we hand out to our seniors here typically graduating from high school, and it's really a, a wonderful book uh, where it just really causes you to think about how you're spending your days. And as we've been reading the book, I've been reminded of that time in my life, the time where my son is at right now, and I've been reminded about where, what I was doing at that age, where I was headed, and how God used a couple of events in my life to get my attention. One of those events happened uh, one night after drinking for a while. A friend and I decided it would be great fun to go into Bel Air and vandalize property and steal things from the lawns and all of that. And we were having great fun until our faces were planted upon the hood of a police car and we were being arrested for grand theft. You didn't know you had a criminal for a pastor, did you? You're kind of rethinking things now, aren't you? Yeah, there is a mugshot of me uh, floating around somewhere. Um, I don't think it's on the internet, but <laughs> but you know what I remember? I spent the night in jail that night. And I remember thinking, once I sobered up a little bit, like, what am I doing here? I didn't learn my lesson, though, because just a few weeks later, <clears throat> I was drinking again, the same crowd. And that particular night, I remember, uh, one minute, remember talking with them and hanging out in front of their apartment on the sidewalk there. The next minute that I remember is waking up the next morning on their couch, laying in my own vomit. I don't remember anything between that period of time, even though my friends told me stuff that I said, stuff that I did. And that, that got my attention. That scared me. I realized, what could have happened in that state? And I remember asking myself again that morning when I woke up, what am I doing here? More than that, not just where the location, but what am I doing? And I remember... I grew up, I was exposed to the gospel, I professed to be a Christian, gone to church, and I, I remember at that moment I'm starting to think, what am I doing here? What, am I, what is life about? Who is God really? Do I really believe in Him? What does He want from me? I'm sure all of us have had those questions at times in our life, maybe not worded that exact same way, but just wondering, what is going on? What am I doing here? What does God want? And our text this morning in Micah 6 addresses that very question. It's the passage that Brother Jim read a few moments ago, and we sang a song in regards to that. In fact, if you would turn there with me, if you're not there yet, Micah chapter 6. 
And the answer to the question is found in the last verse that he read. It's found in the song that we sang, Micah 6, 8. It's a familiar verse. I think many who aren't even um, aware of much of the Bible have probably heard that verse or something like it. In fact, it's interesting. If you go to the main reading room in the Library of Congress, I've got a picture of it here. It's a beautiful room. And if you notice around the rotunda here, the various alcoves, there are these statues. And each of the statues are dedicated to a particular subject. There's a statue dedicated to the arts, to philosophy, to science. There's one statue that's dedicated to religion. It is located in the rotunda here, as I mentioned. And if you were to look up at the plaque above the statue, you would see these words. What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Imagine that. In the Library of Congress, right there on the plaque is given the very purpose of life. Why we are here and what God wants from us. I wonder how many people walk under that thing, never give it a look or a second thought. But there it is. And this morning, we're going to go back to look at the first eight verses of Micah 6. And we're going to learn two things that God really wants. The first is to remember His grace. Jim pointed that out when he read from the passage. We'll see that in verses 1 through 5. And the second is to give Him your heart. We'll see that in verses 6 through 8. Remember His grace and give Him your heart and answer your phone. <clears throat> Sorry, that slipped. Uh, no, just two. Here in Micah 6, we've come to the third section in his book. And in each section, he introduces them with this command to hear, to listen. In chapter 1, verse 2, in the first section, he said this, Hear, O peoples. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, he began his second section with, Hear now, heads of Jacob. And then the third section, here in Micah 6, 1, he begins with, Hear now what the Lord is saying. And right after that, we're then introduced to this courtroom scene. It's a common scene. We've seen it several times in the prophets. God often uses this as a, a way to direct his people to give attention to the fact that they had neglected some things. And here God is the plaintiff in this courtroom. Israel is the defendant. And Micah serves as God's messenger. This courtroom scene unfolds in a dramatic fashion as Micah speaks and God speaks. And then uh, the defendant Israel speaks. And then Micah speaks again. And if you notice... The introduction, or how they introduce each time that a different person begins the dialogue, they start it and they frame it with the word what. In verse 3, God asks, what have I done to you? In verse 6, the people ask, with what shall I come before the Lord? And then Micah says in verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. So let's take a look at verse 1. We read there, it says, hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. We'll stop there. These two commands that God begins with, it says, Arise and plead your case. There are singular verbs in the Hebrew. That means they're addressed to an individual. God here at the beginning is speaking to Micah. And he's telling them to stand up, to state the case, to state the dispute. God is telling Micah that he is to plead the case. Uh, your translations probably have the word your before case there. It's actually not in 
the original. It's not plead your case. It is simply plead the case. This is God's case that he wants Micah to bring. And so in verse 2, Micah, and and of verse 1, and then also in verse 2, notice here that this particular courtroom scene is rather unique because of who is invited to be a witness. Who does Micah speak to there? Who does he invite to be a witness to this case that God is going to bring? Mountains, right? The hills. In verse 2, Micah tells the mountains and the enduring foundations of the earth to hear this case that God has against his people. Now that might seem kind of strange, wouldn't it? Why would you invite these huge inanimate objects to a court case? The mountains, they don't really see. They don't hear. They can't speak. How is it that they then are observers that can be brought as witnesses? And here, of course, Micah is obviously using a poetic, a figurative way to express an important point that there are, the mountains are like these ever-present observers, that they do see everything, that, that all the deeds that they have done and the things that they have said and the thoughts even have been observed by creation. Deuteronomy 31.28 says that the heavens and the earth, they were witnesses at the ratification of the Mosaic Covenant. And the picture here is this this idea that God wants to get across of a constant observer. Verse 2, Micah calls them the enduring foundations. That emphasizes the point that they've been spectators since the beginning of time. They're a permanent fixture. And so in a figurative way, they, they see it all. They've seen it all. So the mountains, they begin to settle in and to listen to this case. We're, we're in a very large courtroom, by the way, so it can fit these guys. So... As they sit in to listen upon the case, God presents it in verse 3 when he says, My people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember now. What Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. That is God presenting his case. And I would ask you, what, what is his tone here? What is God's tone? He's bringing charges against Israel, but notice twice he refers to them as my people. And he gives these two poignant questions There, it begins with when he says, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? The applied charge here is that Israel, or Judah specifically, Israel's already been uh, taken by the Assyrians. Judah specifically had abandoned her covenant to follow the Lord. In fact, that was a promise that was witnessed by a very famous mountain, Mount Sinai. But the tone here shows that the Lord is looking at this as more than some contract that was being broken, but as a relationship being severed. Rather, it was a relational bond that was being torn, and the people had apparently grown tired of God. And so he asks, is there, is there something that I've done to you to, to drive you away? How have I neglected you? How have I let you down? How have I been a burden to you? You see, cold indifference had set into their hearts, and God Serving God had become a trial rather than a delight. Having to give all these offerings, it's really quite a headache. Not working on the Sabbath was too costly. Coming to these annual festivals in Judah every year, three of them in fact, too much effort. All the rules, all the instruction, all the covenant requirements, it's just too excessive, God. 
And we too, as believers, as Christians, can feel tempted to feel the same way, can't we? Where being a Christian, it means to follow rules and obligations. And I have to read my Bible. I have to go to church. I, I have to pray. I have to obey. I have to do good. Be kind to my spouse. Obey my parents. I have to live out the godly disciplines. I have to flee temptation. I, I have to, I have to, I have to. Just this weight upon me. This huge mound of obligations. Jesus has saved me, and so now I have to do all these things. The things of God can seem at times as a burden. They can seem as a, a heavy weight. And so when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, at times perhaps we're tempted to say, yeah, right, <laughs> sure. That brings us to verse 4. God directs their attention to an important truth that he wants them to see. Because the question is, how is it that they and how is it that we can get caught in this trap? And more importantly, how do we get out of it? Being burdened and and wearied. I mean, the trials of life are difficult. Suffering is difficult. Temptation is difficult. We have an enemy that's after us and it's difficult. And at times we can't seem like this burden is upon us that we can't get out from under. And we can grow tired. We may not say it, but sometimes maybe thinking, Lord, I'm tired of serving you. This is too hard. So God says in verse 4, he directs them to some historical events that had taken place in their history. Notice there, what's the first thing that he mentions? Look at verse 4. He refers to what? The exodus, right? Being delivered from Egypt. We see this a lot in the Old Testament. This was like the quintessential, the the most profound and and amazing demonstration of the grace and the power and the love and the mercy of God. Because these people had been steeped in slavery for hundreds of years. No hope, no chance of freedom, generation after generation, bondage to the Egyptians. And then God delivered them in a profound way, didn't he? All those amazing miracles, the, the Passover night. And then the parting of the Red Sea. God had ransomed them out of slavery. And, and beyond that, God tells them here how he gave them these wonderful leaders. Moses, the great prophet and the great leader. Aaron, the high priest. And Miriam, who, who led the women in songs of praise to the Lord and ble- the blessings that he had given. And, and that, that the praise to him, we can read about that in Exodus. And not only did God free them from oppression, right? It wasn't that, okay, I got you out of Egypt. Uh, you're on your own. Have a good life. I hope everything goes well for you. You remember what he did after that? It wasn't that he just freed them from slavery. He brought them to promised land, didn't he? And he mentions here the fact that there were still threats, though, on the way. He mentions two individuals, Balak and Balaam. Do you remember those guys? Balaam, right? I tried first hour too. The donkey, right? We know that one, the talking donkey, but there's more to the story than that. Numbers 22 to 24 talks about Balak and Balaam. Turns out that the people of Israel, after the 40 years wandering in the desert, they'd found their way to the plains of Moab just on the east side of the Jordan River. Problem was the king of Moab, whose name is Balak, he wasn't too happy about that. He'd heard about the things that had happened through the Israelites and he was scared. He was nervous. And so he wanted to find some ways to undermine them and perhaps even weaken them. And he thought, I know I'm going to get a prophet to curse them. 
then all the nations around will think that they're a bad situation, a bad deal, and they'll feel more confidence to attack Israel, and I can get rid of this problem. And so Balaam, who's a false prophet for hire, Balak approaches him and asks him to curse Israel. What happened? Do you remember? Yeah, God made him bless Israel. Balak went nuts over that. They went back and forth, but Balaam continued to bless Israel. God had thwarted Balak's plans. So God reminds him of that here. And he also reminds him of two locations, two places, Shittim and Gilgal. Now, those aren't well-known places, but they are very significant. And the significance, I'll show a little map here, is Shittim was the last place that the Israelites were camped in until going into the Promised Land. It was located on the east side of the Jordan River, probably somewhere in here. This Moab is this region here. Gilgal was the first place on the west side of the Jordan where they camped before attacking Jericho and entering the Promised Land, somewhere probably in here. Now, you remember what happened between going from Shittim into Gilgal, going from the land of Moab into the Promised Land? Do you remember? They had a little obstacle here they had to kind of get through. It wasn't a little stream either. It was this river, the River Jordan, right, that they had to cross. God parted the, the river there so they could cross on dry land. And even that, they would know and remember from their history that between Shittim and Gilgal, they had defeated the Midianites. They took care of Balaam. And God had cared for them, protected them, kept away the threats that were trying to keep them from the promised land. And so these two cities, these two locations would remind them of that. And so we see here in verses 4 and 5, God reminding them of these historical events in their history in order to show them that they had been freed from the bondage to slavery and given this new land, that God had made sure that they got there, that they received that promise despite all the obstacles. And my question to you would be, why is God doing this? Why is God mentioning these historical events? He had brought a case against Israel that they had become wearied of him. They were burdened by They got tired of God. And so God says, remember these things. What's he doing here? What's he trying to show them? In responding to these people who had grown weary of God, he brings up some situations that had took place in their past because God wants them to see something very important. In fact, he emphasizes it through a clever play on words here in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, there's a phrase given there, I made you weary, that comes from the Hebrew word helitika. And the phrase in verse 4, I brought you up, comes from the word helitika. Sounds pretty close, don't they? He chose them on purpose in order to emphasize the point that, as Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar, says, God's saying here, I am said to have overburdened you. Actually, I have unburdened you. You see, they'd completely forgotten this very thing. They had forgotten the grace of God. They had forgotten the work that he had done for his people, the kindness and grace that he had shown. And they saw serving God then as an obligatory thing rather than as a delight. And so God says here, remember, remember. In fact, look in verse 5. He uses that very command. Remember now, my people. Remember who I am. Remember what I have done. Remember how I redeemed you. Remember how I gave you this land flowing with milk and honey. Remember our relationship and that I care for you, my people. And this serves as a good instruction for us. Because again, we can become weary. 
We can become weary in following the rules. And if that is the case, we've forgotten the whole point. We've drifted from the right motivation. You're now viewing your relationship to Jesus the same way the people of Judah were referring, reviewed excuse me, their relationship to God. And that's never the incentive God wants us to have, right? I mean, rather than feeling that way, we must remember what God has done in our lives. Remember the slavery we were delivered from, right? Not Egypt, but from sin. Remember that we've been redeemed not from the slave pits, but we've redeemed from the eternal pit if you're a child of God. God gave Israel the prize of the land. He's given us heaven. But along the way from Shatim to Gilgal in our life, we've encountered and experienced things that have gotten in the way, obstacles, but God through His righteous acts has delivered us too. And I want you to ask yourself, how much good has God done in your life? that you can remember and reflect on. Because when you feel weary, you need to reorient your motivation by remembering what God has done. Remember the grace of God in your life. Regularly reflect on how He has delivered you, how He has cared for you. And again, today, some of you may be feeling that burden, the difficulties of life. And just serving you, Lord, is not easy. It is hard. It is work. It is effort. I'm tired. And I would ask you, do you have ways in your life that you will consciously make yourself remember the good things that God has done, the grace that he's given you in your life? What verses or passages or or stories from Scripture do you have at the ready in those times when you feel that burden, when your desire to, to serve the Lord is waning? How much of your time in prayer is is spent on reflecting on those things and thanking God for them? The acts of His grace in your life. Because brothers and sisters, we too need to remember, don't we? We must remember. And we can't grow tired of this. We're, We're so prone to drift into this direction. Again, life is a challenge. It is difficult. And so I appreciate here God again saying, just remember, remember. Don't lose sight of what is going on here. Don't lose sight of the big picture. Don't forget how I have shown my grace to you each and every circumstance, even through the trials. My grace is evident. I have a purpose in this. People of Judah had forgotten that. They had forgotten God's grace. They had totally missed the boat on what God was really after. And not only did they miss it in regards to not remembering what he has done, but they missed it in a second way. And we see that in verses 6 through 8 in their rebuttal to God's case against them. In these verses, we see the second thing that God wants. For not only does he want you to remember his grace, but also to give him your heart. As we arrive at verse 6, again, we're given the the people's response to God's case against them. And and Micah presents this as if we had a representative Israelite standing there hearing God's case against them. And here, this representative uh, Jew, this representative Israelite is giving their response. That's why we see it in in the singular. It's kind of a poetic effect to bring emphasis to a point. And this person's response, this representative response is this, beginning in verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? 
with yearly calves? Does the Lord take the light in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Let's pause there. Now, do you see a pattern here? A focus? What do these questions center around? What is he talking about here? What is he doing? He's basically this idea of, okay, God, I, I get that you're unhappy. And yes, I admit that I'm tired of your requirements. So just what is it that you want from me? What is it that you desire? What do I have to do that will make you happy? Introductory question is, with what shall I approach the exalted God? And then following that question are several other questions, several proposals. The first is given in verse 6 where he says, Shall I come with the burnt offering, a yearling calf? Burnt offering was described in Leviticus 1. It was probably the most common of the offerings that were part of the ceremonial practices, the worship practices in Israel. And it was an offering that was generally given by an individual. It was a personal offering. And it was given to to communicate a desire to be wholly devoted. That's why this offering, unlike the others, this offering was completely consumed on the altar. The other offerings sometimes would be the, the offerer would take some, for meal or be given to the priest. But this particular offering, everything was to be burnt up on the altar, just again as a picture of a complete devotion to God. And Leviticus 1 indicates that you could bring a bird or a sheep or a goat or a young bull. The most valuable of these would be a young bull. It could be anywhere from eight days old and up that, that could be given. And to communicate here this point of giving a year old calf a year old bull would be to say that this is the most valuable burnt offering i could give because i spent time raising and and caring for this animal i'm not giving just something that was just born but something that i have been with for a year and so this would be kind of the best burnt offering that could be given then in verse 7 our representative israelite asks this does the lord take the light in would would god gladly accept how about thousands of rams Solomon had sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep at the dedication of the temple. But that was extremely rare. It was not something that God would expect from an individual. But notice here how the the speaker is moving from quality to quantity, right? He goes from the the yearling bull, the yearling calf, to thousands of rams, But he doesn't stop there. He then adds in verse 7, what about 10,000 rivers of oil? Probably referring to olive oil here, a precious commodity in the ancient Near East. It was used in sacrificial offerings, but usually in small quantities. But here, notice he says 10,000 rivers. Now that word 10,000 actually is a word that means myriads, um, tens of thousands, a huge amount. And notice he doesn't say tens of thousands of gallons of oil, right? What does he say? Tens of thousands of rivers. We're talking a massive amount. Something that could not really be calculated. There's a progression here, isn't there? Notice he goes from the the yearling to the thousands of rams to the tens of thousands of rivers of oils. The ocean full of valuable oil. But he doesn't stop there, does he? There's one more, he adds. Something that is of infinite worth. He says, shall I present my firstborn to pay for my sin? 
And there that phrase, to pay for my sin, means he's asking, shall I sacrifice my oldest child on an altar and kill him or kill her for you, God? And that was a practice that God had condemned Judah's previous king, King Ahaz, uh, who was one of the rulers when Micah ministered. King Ahaz was guilty of such a wicked act as part of his idol worship. But I don't think the person here asking the question and this representative Israel is, is is speaking literally here I think he's trying to make a point for at first it would seem like these questions are being expressed from a, a genuine desire to know how to please God right that's that's how they might come across the first question seems reverent with what shall I come before the exalted the the God on high These questions, again, may seem to be coming from a penitent person, someone who's desperate to know, God, what what do you want? But that's not what really is going on here. Remember, God had just accused them of being weary of him, of abandoning their relationship with him, forsaking the covenant. And notice their response was not, Lord, forgive us. Lord, we want to repent. We want to turn from this. Notice their responses. They begin to bargain with God as if he were some petty merchant. They made offers bordering on the ridiculous. What is the price for your favor, God? What would it take to make you happy? Thousands of rams? Tens of thousands of rivers of oil? My own child? Do you want me to murder my own child on an altar? Would that please you? See, these are... These are hyperbole and they're the over-the-top, ridiculous, ludicrous proposals. They don't reflect the heart of someone wanting to please God. They come from this defensive attitude, trying to justify its actions. It's kind of like hypothetical situation, but let's say you, your kid is struggling with doing their chores. And so you talk to bring this up to them one day and your child responds, well, do, do you want me to clean my room every day? Do you want me to to clean the whole house and the yard every day of my life? Or do you want me to clean all the houses and all the yards in all of Los Angeles? Would that make you happy? Or what if I worked so hard it killed me? Would you be pleased then? That's the same tone here. That's the same tone here. What do you want from me, God? Haven't I already given you enough? Do you want more? What would it take? To get you off my back. They just didn't get it. They thought God was like any other deity that uh, just wanted some outward expression of service. They thought they could live life how they wanted to. And as long as they performed a duty, as long as they performed a ritual, God would be appeased. Right? They just thought God wanted them to obey some rules. And when God called them on it, They responded with sarcasm and self-justification. The condition of their heart is also seen in the rest of chapter 6, which indicates that really verses 6 and 7 are not uh, genuine questions. Uh, The rest of the chapter talks about specific sins that they were participating in. But God doesn't point those things out here yet. In these first few verses, he points out not their actions, but their hearts. That's essentially Micah's point in his response in verse 8. Look there again. Micah says these words. After these questions, Micah says, He has told you, O man, what the Lord, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. 
And in this verse we see, you know what? They, want, they offered God everything but the thing he really wanted. Micah says here, this isn't a mystery, folks. This isn't something new that God's kept hidden. He's told you many times. He's told you what he desires. He's made it abundantly clear what he wants. And he doesn't want anything at all that is not born out of a relationship with him. Over and over, right? All through the Bible, God has said this. Samuel, when he spoke to Saul, he talked about this whole issue. of Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than what? Sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. If you remember back when we were in Hosea, prophet Hosea said to the northern tribes of Israel in Hosea 6, 6, For I delight in loyalty. It's a chesed, loyal love. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But you see, Micah's hearers, they, they'd rather have this passionless, uh, distant uh, situation, external duties they could do to live life how they wanted and then appease their deity with some sacrifice. And God hated that. In fact, he said through the prophet Isaiah, a contemporary of Micah, probably even to the same audience or uh, to their children. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 29, 13. This people draws near with their words and honors me with their lip service. But they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. The world hasn't changed much, has it? Jesus later quotes that very passage when he's speaking to the Pharisees in Mark 7 and says to them, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts... Your hearts are far from me. And human beings are so prone to this, so prone to treat God like a distant, a disconnected, powerful deity, but not very smart, not too bright. Because if we just perform some ritual or, or service or duty or say some canned prayers, that's all God is interested in. It's all he wants. And we so often fail to realize that God inspects the heart before he looks at the gift. And I know we talk about the importance of the heart here a lot. I know we bring it up a lot, but that's because God brings it up a lot. The Bible talks about it all the time. God's desire for genuine service, genuine love from the heart. We can't be reminded about this too much. We can't talk about it enough, beloved, because again, it's so easy to drift. It's so easy to drift. And our battle with our own flesh and our battle with Satan and our battle with consequences of sins from other people and, and our battle and difficulty just with living in this physical place, having these bodies that deteriorate. My ankle's still not working right. Six weeks. It's frustrating. We can't be reminded too much, though, that don't let these things of life cause you to, to drift away and to the situation where can view God's relationship as just some things that you need to do for him. I carry out my Christian duties of Bible reading and prayer and church and giving and service and communion and obeying the commands. If I do those things, then he'll be happy because that's what he wants. Just like the sacrifices in the Old Testament, right? These are good things. These are things that God desires to see in our lives. But we have to always remember they are the output not the input there's a difference 
That was Jesus's point when he said, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. The idea is if God gets the heart, he gets the lips, (laughs) right? Doesn't happen the other way around. Moses made this abundantly clear in Deuteronomy as the people were in the plains of Moab. They were able to listen to several sermons by Moses. One of them in Deuteronomy 10 verse 12, something that he repeated several times in his messages. But here he says in Deuteronomy 10, 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve him and to keep his commandments and the statutes which I'm commanding you today for your good. And then in verse 14, Moses gives the basis for that when he says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens and the earth and all that is in that. God is highly exalted. He's above all of his creation. And then he says, Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you above all the peoples, as it is this day. So circumcise your heart, stiffen your neck no longer. And Moses says there, on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. Those are emotionally rich terms that describe a devotion, an affection, a a love, a a care, a delight, a fondness. And God here says He wants them to serve and love Him, but it's born out of that relationship with Him, a relationship that He has pursued to set His affection on them. As a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same commitment is made to you. He set His affection upon you. And in Micah 6.8, Micah describes what a relationship with the Lord would look like when he asks the question, well, what does the Lord want? And he answers with this, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That word, to do justice. Justice has been the focus of Micah's messages, hasn't it? He's brought it up a lot in his many sermons. In chapter 2, he had focused on the injustice, uh, the oppression of the rich, the land barons. In chapter 3, he condemned the political leaders and judges for their injustice, for their abuses. And then in chapter 6, uh, he will later on, we'll see that he will condemn the injustices being practiced among the people themselves. And to this injustice, God's finally saying, you know what? Enough! I want to see justice. You know what I want from you? I want to see you doing right, treating one another rightly. I want to see those of you who are in positions of authority. I want to see you being fair and equitable. I want to see an end to lying and fraud and deceit. I want to see an end to partiality and favoritism. Step in. Deliver the weak. Deliver the person who has been wronged. But they'd been doing the opposite, hadn't they? So God says, you know what? I don't want to hear about sacrifices. Before bringing me sacrifices, I want to see justice towards others in your heart. That's what he says rather bluntly in Amos 5. 5.21 says, I hate, I, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like rivers and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
right? That picture of they're coming to give God what they think he wants, these sacrifices, and God says, I'm not even going to look at them. I don't want to see that. What I want to see is justice being exuded from your life like a river flowing out. God's saying there, a person's worship is revolting to him if they're at the same time mistreating others. Beloved, my question for us is, do you think God expects the same from us? Justice? Does this instruction that Micah's giving to the people of his day apply to us, or was it just for them? I hear a couple of you saying yes. (laughs) Yeah. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and, and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Jesus describes there. He doesn't abrogate the sacrificial system. He says, yeah, do those things, but, but you've neglected the more important, the weightier things of the law. Justice, faithfulness, mercy. And so justice should characterize us, right? Look again at Micah 6, 8. Notice there's a word there in front of the word justice or justly. What is it? What's your Bible say? To do or to act. Act justly, to do justice. That's a, a verb of action. To do justice is more than just speaking about injustice. It's more than just getting others to be just. It is also, God expects, to take action yourself. To do justice. It is to be just in all your relationships, especially if you're in authority. Those of you who are bosses or managers or business owners, do you treat those that you are responsible for with fairness, with equity? Fathers, husbands, are you a just shepherd in your home? Mothers, are you fair with all of your children? Employees, do you work hard only when you're being watched? And for all of us, do you only help others when it is in your best interest to do so? Or because you will get something in return? We have to really think about that. What are you doing about the injustices going on around you? God expressed his expectation even more clearly in Isaiah 1, when again he had confronted the people about their giving sacrifices, and yet there was a problem that existed in their hearts. And so he calls them to repentance in verse 16 of Isaiah 1, and he does that using these words. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, Plead for the widow. These are all actions. He expects us to take action. It's one thing to say abortion is wrong. It is another to be committed to take action through prayer, through supporting a gospel-centered ministry, through writing your congressman, through not shying away from reproving others who endorse it. What about those who are trapped in the sex slave trade? What about orphans? What about widows? What about single moms? How are you actively involved in helping them? Do justice. We must practice ourselves 
to do justice as individuals, not leaving it for the church to do or someone else to do, but also for ourselves. Ask the Lord to show you some ways to do this. Are you doing justice? Micah adds to that in verse 8, in addition to doing justice is also to love kindness, or some of your translations may say love mercy. That's that word chesed again, to love this idea of faithfulness, loyalty, compassion, care, mercy, kindness, grace. It's a, it's a loyal love that expresses itself in acting acts of kindness for the good of another. And notice Micah here phrases it very interestingly. He says, God wants us to love chesed. We are to delight in showing compassion. We are to be excited about being faithful and loyal in our relationships. We're to have a desire, a strong desire to be kind to others. We're to enjoy being merciful. In short, he's saying we are to to love love, to love this this loyal love. Again, God doesn't want us to be kind. He wants us to have a, a passion for it. It's not just that God wants us to show mercy. He wants us to have a a zeal for it, to be looking for ways to extend mercy or compassion to another. Don't just serve someone because you're supposed to, but the idea here God is getting at is because you want to. You want to love, love. Again, there's a difference. These aren't to be like these imposed responsibilities or tasks, but they deal with the heart disposition here right god expects more than just action or duty jesus came did he come out of obligation no no he didn't he came because he wanted to he hung on the tree not because he had to but he did it out of love right love for the father love for us he did it because he delighted in it. Jesus went about doing, doing good because that was the passion of his heart. So you see, when, when God says he, he wants us to, to do justice and he, he wants us to love love, this is, this is describing a transformed heart, isn't it? This is not something that comes natural. At least to speak for myself. <laughs> Can you truly say that you delight in doing good for others? In the name of Christ. The only way that we can do justice, the only way that we can love love is if, is if our heart has been changed. That's the only way that it can happen. Only if you've come to Christ and confess that you are a sinner, confess that you need His forgiveness, confess that you want to be born again and changed and transformed, and that you want to turn from your sin and, and follow Christ. That full commitment that He desires... That is the point in which Holy Spirit will transform your heart if it's a genuine desire on your part. That's when you'll be given these desires that God wants you to have. That's when you'll be empowered by His Spirit to do justice, to love love. And then thirdly, Micah points out at the end of verse 8, to what? To walk humbly with your God. What does walk mean here? We see it a lot. We've talked about it a lot. What is it? the journey through life, right? The, the course of your life, your lifestyle, how you conduct yourself. And here, notice here how your life is to be spent. More specifically, who it is to be spent with. 
He says here, walk humbly with your God. Again, notice the relationship here. Walk humbly with your God. This isn't just a matter of showing up once a week, right, and giving God some attention. This is a, a, a lifelong commitment, a continuous association with God all day, every day. And Micah tells us here the attitude with we, which we must have in walking with your God. What attitude does he mention here? Walk humbly, humbly with your God. That's pretty much what most of the English translations put there. But actually, this word is a rare word, and it's difficult to translate. I think the King James translated it this way, and everyone else just kind of followed along because there wasn't clear what this word actually was meaning. But the basic idea of the word through further study and scholarship has shown the root idea was to guard. It came to mean to be careful. And in fact, if you have a New American Standard Bible, look in your margin for verse 8, and you'll notice it has the word there, or circumspectly. That's probably a a better translation. I think that's more the point. This idea of, of being cautious, of being careful. Walk circumspectly with your God. This idea of a, of a careful attention, of a vigilance, of that this is my focus, my priority. This is where all my efforts need to go. I need to be careful to make sure I'm walking with my God on a continual basis. Paul captured this same idea, I think the exact same idea, in Ephesians 5.15. It's interesting, going through Micah, I've noticed a lot of connections to, to Paul in Ephesians. And here, I think, is another one where Paul says in Ephesians 5.15, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as what? Wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he says, do not get drunk with wine. That applied to me, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. In that passage, Paul's addressing the very same concept, the very same idea where he says, be careful how you conduct your life. And then ends it there with be filled by the Spirit. He tells us how we may walk circumspectly with our God. That is to be filled by His Spirit, to to spend consistent time with the Lord in His Word and with His people. Galatians 5.16 worded it even more directly, right? Where he says there, walk by the Spirit, right? And then a few verses later, it describes what will come out of your life, what will be the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Do you remember some of them? Say them out to me. Love. I got them all. There you go. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? That's what will come out of your life as you're walking humbly with your God, as you're walking by the Spirit, and so, with, those, with that fruit, with those attributes, you will do justice. You will love mercy, love kindness, love love. Paul and Micah both, they, they tell us here to walk, walk circumspectly with, with your God. Consider prayerfully what God desires. This idea of making Him, making His desires the priority. That's to be the course of your life. And beloved, remember this. How many lives do you have? I don't want to hear us talking about cats right now. (laughs) How many lives do you have? We each have one, right? Don't waste it. Don't waste it. I was wasting my life (laughs) completely and by God's grace. 
He found me. I wasn't looking for him. I couldn't even see straight some of those weekends. But God found me. Even though I was wasting my life. Don't waste yours. Don't spend it pursuing things that won't last. Don't don't squander it by seeking things that won't satisfy. Missionary C.T. Studd penned these words. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's well put. What is the goal of your life? In practice, not, not in theory, not what you want it to be. What is it right now? How are you conducting yourself? What is the purpose of your life? Do you want to make money so that you can retire and live comfortably? Is your goal to get out of life all you can before it's over, to achieve success, to reach the top? To, are you consumed with health or, or hobbies or family? What, perhaps actually a better question is, is who are you really living for? God has shown you, oh man, he has told you, oh man, what is good and what he requires from you, but to do justice, to love, love, and to walk circumspectly with your God. I'd like for us to, to take a moment, go to prayer and talk to the Lord about Micah 6, 8. And ask him specifically, what are areas in your life to do justice, to love love? Are you walking circumspectly with your God? I'll give you a moment to talk to him about that. Maybe these things are, you're at a place where you feel you're tired of God. Maybe you're not sure what God wants from you. Maybe you're at the place that I was at, or what is life all about? This is your time to talk to him. Let me give you a moment, then I'll pray, and then I'd like us to close our time prayerfully seeing Micah 6, 8 together. Okay? So let's take a moment now to talk to God. Lord, you have, you have told us, you have announced to us many times. Here again this morning, Lord, we've seen what you desire. You've not only announced it and declared it to us, you have shown us what it looks like through the wonderful example of our Lord Jesus Christ, what it looks like to do justice and to love love, what it looks like to walk circumspectly with you. All the time. Thank you for his example. And Lord, we know that he was empowered by your spirit to do this just as you have called us to be, to walk by your spirit. We will not carry out the deeds of the flesh, but rather we'll carry out the desires that you want to see in us love and joy and peace, the justice and mercy. Father, work in us to do that. And Lord, I, pr- I pray that if there are any here, this morning that are struggling with this, that these things just seem like two more things to have to do. I have to do justice now. I have to love love. Lord, that remind them of your grace in their lives. And Lord, show them if they have not yet experienced your grace, that they would come to you in faith, place their trust in the Lord Jesus, so that they may have a transformed heart. And I pray, God, for all of us, that 
Lord, these words from Micah would be engraved in our hearts as much as they're engraved in that stone on the Library of Congress. Lord, we ask all these things in the name of, of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.